You're about to listen to a true story told live because this is True Stories Live. Brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Art Centre and me, Molly Naylor. person spoke uh, a few months ago and we just loved him so much that we we basically forced him to come back so would you please join me in welcoming the wonderful David Shenton notes <laughs> I'm, I'm David Shenton and I'm a queer cartoonist and uh, tonight's true story from me has a title four December weddings a funeral, and a life-affirming Christmas message. Uh, there will be some bad language, and I would like you to join in with that. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm going to be reading some of this. It, it'll, I'll, I'll throw this away later when I get into the swing of it. Okay. okay, in the 80s and 90s, during the AIDS crisis, young gay men found out they were HIV positive one week, and many died just a few short weeks later. Some of these young men had lifetime partners and had lived together as a couple, some for many years. There was no paperwork available to say they were a couple. Perhaps a will might have been left, perhaps not. But it happened with depressing regularity that when one partner died, the householder, his family who had never come to terms with their son's sexuality, let alone, of him dying of AIDS, stepped in, denied the existence of there ever being a partner, and the partner is ousted out of his own home, sometimes not even allowed to go to the funeral. Not all that common, but common enough that something had to be done about it. I met John Griffiths in 1995 at a party in Brixton. I was 46, he was 47. I was living in Tottenham, he was in Bournemouth. We both worked in different fields within the HIV AIDS sector. I worked for various health education councils, writing and drawing information and safer sex leaflets. John was a clinical psychologist who counseled patients who had just received their HIV status results. We became a firm couple. In about two months, I did the gay thing, sold up my place in London and moved to Bournemouth. We bought a house together, joint mortgages were unavailable to same-sex couples then, and because I was self-employed, I didn't have a proper job. The house was in John's name. Neither of us had a particularly grasping family, but we knew we had to make a cu our coupledom a thing. We made a will, which might still be contested, but there was nothing else in the mid-90s except the joint Tesco club card. On the application form, there was a box that said spouse, but it didn't specify which sex. So we filled it in as two men. So out and proud, and so wedding number one, we got our club card with two misters in black and white in time for Christmas. <laughs> but it probably wouldn't have stood for much in any court of law. 
We moved back to London in 1997. John got a job at Homerton Hospital in Hackney, and we bought a house there. Still no joint mortgages available. Four years later, in 2001, we learned that Ken Livingstone, Labour, London's mayor, had set up the London Partnership Register, the first public organisation in Britain to offer recognition to same-sex couples, even without any legal rights. It cost £85 for a ceremony of less than 10 minutes in a sparsely decorated room, but we could get a certificate making the declaration of our relationship official, so we jumped at it. It was held in the visitor's centre for the GLA, the Greater London Authority, somewhere behind Westminster Abbey. On the wall, we passed an ivy-clad wall, broke off two pieces of ivy and wore them in our lapels. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been a health centre in the building too because the corridors had posters of tooth decay and smokers' lungs on the wall. <laughs> the official greets us by name and says, Where's your harpist? And John said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know we had to bring one. <laughs> the official looked at his list and checked. And it says here, you're bringing a harpist. And John said, well, all I can do is apologize. That was wedding number two. Another four years passed, and wedding number three was on the 21st of December 2006, the very first day that civil partnerships took place. We booked the very first appointment in Hackney at 10 a.m. on that first day. We asked our next-door neighbours, another John and his wife, Breege, if they were free for the day, but we didn't say what for. We caught the 38 bus to Hackney Town Hall. We were a bit early, but there was the Weatherspoons open across the road. Weatherspoons was surprisingly full, reading the red-top newspapers. The headline, Elton to Wed Today. His civil partnership with David Furnish was to be at 3 p.m. somewhere else. Some of the breakfast people were a bit upset by this headline and were saying things like, fucking puffs, fucking Elton. That's a bit of a swearing. <laughs> yeah, they're not joining in yet. Not wanting to hear all this, we left and headed for the town hall. We gave John and Breed a sprig of ivy each. So by now they'd guessed what we're up to. The registrar was new, this was her first day. She was very nervous on this day, one of civil partnership, and was a bit disappointed that all we wanted to do was to sign the register. She asked if we wanted some music. John said, is it harp? <laughs> she said, no, it's Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World. And we said, no, you're all right. <laughs> she got the register out, dipped her new fountain pen in her new bottle of ink and began to write. Hold on, said John. There's already writing on that page. I thought we were the first. Oh, yeah, two women called in this morning and did it on their way to work. Did it. <laughs> So we'd been nobbled, we weren't the first. Then I heard Breege crying. I said, what's the matter, Breege? She said, this is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Outside on the town hall steps, we asked a passerby to take our one wedding photo. Then we got back on the 38, this time going into town, and we had lunch at the Ritz. And at last, a joint mortgage, joint bank accounts, etc., etc. Marriage number four, 
John had retired and we left London. I wanted to return to Norfolk, so we moved to Cromer. It was nine years later, the 10th of December, 2014, when we had wedding number four. This was on the day romantically called Standard Conversion Wednesday. <laughs> it was called Gay Marriage by the Rubbish Newspapers, same-sex marriage by the posh newspapers, but I like to call it equal marriage. We phoned Norwich Registry to get things done, but Norwich had never heard of it. <laughs> Even though it was splashed all over the papers, perhaps you should have asked the breakfast people in Weatherspoons. <laughs> anyway, we used our old address in London and converted our civil partnership into a marriage. No witnesses needed, us in our suits with a sprig of ivy, Standing at this sliding glass window in Islington Town Hall, signed a form in front of an official, finding out by reading the small print that our equal marriage had been backdated to the civil partnership date, meaning we'd automatically been married for nine years already. <laughs> and that's it. John was disappointed because of the nine wedding anniversaries we'd missed and the presents. <laughs> year, year one paper, year two cotton, year three leather, and so on. And there we are, equal marriage, recognized by the law of the land, but still completely ignored by the church to this day. Last year on December the 12th, after being together for 23 years, John died following a very short illness. And although we never got quite used to calling each other husband, it certainly came in handy on hospital visits. One registrar asked me what my relationship with John was, so I said, husband. He said, I'll just put civil partner. I said, no, you won't. You'll put husband. But I'm not finishing here. I want to go back to Christmas Day 2005. John and I have been part civil partners for four days. And my brother, Martin, his wife, Angela, my, are you getting ready to swear? Okay. His wife, Angela, my niece, Mary, and her husband, Sean, came to stay those few days in our Hackney sitting room. Five o'clock-ish, open fire, sleeping dogs, tree with lights, the lot. Angela is doing a Christmas Sudoku in the Radio Times. John has got to fix some, gone to fix some drinks, and my brother mends clocks, and he's busy trying to get the one he brought us as a wedding Christmas present to go. It's a very elegant Edwardian mantle clock that he has restored, but it wasn't working. And it was working perfectly in Shrewsbury, where he lives, but doesn't seem to like East London. Surprisingly, he has brought a pocket full of old pennies, and he's at the mantelpiece, standing the clock on four stacks of these at different heights, then rocking the clock to see if it will go more than ten times before stopping. Eventually, the mantelpiece gets too hot for him, and so he moves to the floor with the clock and the pennies and the, and the meticulous rocking and balancing. Me, Mary, and Sean are also on the carpet playing a retro board game they said they wanted for Christmas. This was the game of Twin Peaks. Do you know what Twin Peaks is? Otherwise, there's no point in going on with this. <laughs> it's, uh, it, Twin Peaks is from the uh, TV show by David Lynch. And in this game, you have to discover which player... Has anybody played the board game? <laughs> in this game, you have to discover which player stroke character has been possessed by the malevolent spirit Bob <laughs> and gone on to kill Laura Palmer. You travel around the board and you collect donuts. 
but sometimes you're in the dream room. Do you remember the dream room bit? It's a, it's a sort of little a red room with zigzag carpet and, red and, and zigzag curtains. And this little guy sidles up sometimes. He talks like this. And, but he talks backwards. This is where the swearing comes in. Okay, so, yeah, and you can do this after me. So, so he comes up and he goes, Eh, fuck, eh, knife, mad. Says it like that. And obviously that is damn fine coffee backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you want to have a go at that? Eh, fuck, eh, knife, Mm, damn, mad, sorry. <laughs> and every time, my, every time they were with my niece and my, my, my husband were saying this, my sister-in-law would look up from her sudoku and go, language. <laughs> anyway, Martin's having no luck with the clock as he delicately changes the height of the penny stacks. Then John comes into the room carrying a large tray of stuff, still turned crackers and glasses of port. Poor anyone? And then he firmly kicks this clock off its pennies. Port wine and crackers tumble off the tray. The clock flies right across the room and crash lands upright onto our Twin Peaks board game where we are going, eh, fuck, eh, knife, eh, mad, language. <laughs> A shocked and total silence. And then the clock starts ticking and has done ever since. And John said, wine, crackers, flying clocks, mumbo-jumbo, new starts. There's enough heavy symbolic material here, both sacred and secular, to make umpteen comforting, philosophical, life-affirming moral messages for one Christmas night. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and Angela says, well, we could do less of that language, couldn't we? <laughs> so, John Griffiths, perfect, no question. True Stories Live is a story show and story finding project brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. For more information about all of the work that we do, head to our website truestorieslive.co.uk.